0: and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Today I'm going to be reading from uh, a phenomenal book, uh, one which I believe has uh, really uh, got a fraction of the recognition it deserves, um, Savage Continent by Keith Lowe. Um, Often on this podcast uh, I've, I've extolled the virtues of historians like Tony Judd and Adam Tooze um who have the ability of the to create these uh vast and highly detailed tableaus of um uh, interwar and post war history. Uh well Keith Lowe uh just done the same with uh, Savage Continent. Um and he talks about a very underdiscussed period which would be the the kind of the uh, the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Um, from the final months of the war uh, in 1945 all the way through to kind of uh, 47 to 48. And in many countries, uh, particularly in, in Eastern Europe, conflict was ongoing. In many countries in both East and West Europe, um, after the end of hostilities uh, against Germany uh, and, and Italy, the Axis powers. Civil conflicts continued and the questions, the political questions, ideological questions thrown up by by the war um, of collaboration uh, and uh, the really civil wars that had been fought um, during the Second World War um, continued to uh, produce... Uh, cycles of retribution uh, and uh, displacement of of people. Um, And so what we're going to look at today is the uh, experience that Western and East European countries had uh, of uh, citizens uh, at the end of official hostilities not being able to trust one another, to see collaborators uh, everywhere, And in many cases, this lack of trust was entirely justified because there had been, in many European countries, significant numbers of collaborators. So, um, Keith Lowe writes, "'At the height of the war, Germany directly or indirectly controlled more than a dozen countries across Europe and exercised enormous influence in half a dozen more. For all their military might, the Nazis could not have done this without the help of tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, of collaborators in those countries.' No matter how much the people of Europe hated the Germans in the immediate aftermath of the war, they hated collaborators more. Germans at least had the excuse that they were part of a foreign culture, a foreign power. Collaborators, by contrast, were traitors to their own countries. And in the fiercely patriotic atmosphere that permeated uh, Europe at the end of the war, this was an unforgivable sin. At the end of the war, of course, uh, every country wanted to consider itself um, having resisted Every country wanted to consider itself having not really been uh, occupied but had been fighting a, a spirited battle uh, a, a against, the, uh, against the Germans. However, in, in many cases this wasn't actually true uh, and that uh, an immense amount of, of guilt, uh, guilt for uh, becoming implicated in the crimes of the enemy, particularly the crimes against the Jews, and also an immense amount of um, uh, really hurt masculine pride of uh, having been occupied, having been forced into a position of, of collaboration. The dehumanisation of collaborators, writes Keith Lowe, in the aftermath of the war is difficult for modern generations to understand. In, Euro- uh, in the European press they were portrayed as vermin, mad dogs or inferior elements that needed to be cleansed from society. In Denmark and Norway, they were depicted in the popular arts as rats, while in Belgium, the collective animosity towards them, according to British observers, was akin to a religious fervour. In such an atmosphere, it was hardly surprising that some people became violent towards them, Um, as Peter Voet, uh, a doctor who worked with the Dutch Resistance, noted after the war. Deep hatred of the collaborators and a desire for revenge was so widespread that some kind of punishment was inevitable. Though it was on everyone's mind, no one really knew what form this retaliation would take. There were rumours of a day of axes, when the mob would take the law into its own hands. So there was a version of this retribution in almost uh, every European country. The uh, wartime leaders, uh, many of whom were arrested and trialled, so people like Vidkun Quisling in uh, Norway, uh, Pierre Laval in France... Um, But further down the tree, um, local mayors and administrators, people who had been kind of uh, useful kind of uh, local and regional apparatchiks for not just the Nazis but collaborationist governments. Um, Policemen who had been uh, the enforcers of the rules, sometimes highly enthusiastic enforcers, always remember... That it was not German soldiers that arrested Anne Frank, but Dutch policemen. Um, the uh, far right militias, who had been emboldened by fascist governments, uh, and those um, who had been who had written repressive laws. Um, there had been uh, prominent collaborationist uh, industrialists who had done very well out of uh, Nazi contracts, Uh, and also, uh, on on a much, much lower level, um, uh, restaurateurs, cafe owners, uh, people who supplied foodstuffs to uh, Nazi barracks and garrisons, um, people who uh, had been involved in the media, who had... um, Written news stories in favour of the occupation forces, or who had been uh, broadcasters or filmmakers for uh, disseminating Nazi propaganda, actors and singers were uh, who had been uh, uh, happy to or coerced into entertaining German troops, um, and uh, priests who had um, openly spoken out in favour of fascist policies. It it's, it seems clear that uh, these figures um, obviously great many of them deeply morally compromised by um, the collaboration also become lightning rods for the rest of society um, who either suffered in frustration who actively resisted or for the most part who accepted their lot uh, reluctantly um, and uh, wished for an end to the war there were uh, a, a particular group who were singled out for hatred were um women who had slept with n- um nazi soldiers i uh, i.e., either um single women who had uh soldiers who had relationships with soldiers um or prostitutes who had uh, been uh, have it, who had uh, sex with soldiers Um, And, of course, the dividing line between the two was deliberately blurred when the um, occupation came to an end and women who were not prostitutes at all were often decried as being so um, and publicly shamed in in all sorts of demeaning ways. For some women, uh, they were forced to prove their innocence. There were, in, in many European countries, Um, Women who had perhaps exchanged a pleasantry with a German soldier or who had uh, smiled as one had waved uh, were then uh, forced to prove that they hadn't harboured some sort of unspoken feeling and then when you get down to that level you're looking at uh, sort of gossip and insinuation uh, and the the kind of culture of denunciation that you, you ironically saw uh, in the stalinist russia and uh, in in nazi germany keithley writes Every form of vengeance shown to Germans in Czechoslovakia and Poland, Um, the the Czechs and the Poles expelled Germans extremely violently, these were um, ethnic civilian Germans from from their their territories, Um, was also visited by collaborators and fascists across Europe. During the chaos of liberation, Dutch and Belgian collaborators were summarily executed and their houses burned down, while the police looked on with indifference and even our uh, approbation. In Italy, the bodies of fascists were displayed in the streets where they could be kicked or spat at by passers-by. Even Mussolini's corpse was treated like this before being suspended from the roof of a petrol station in Milan's Piazza Le Loretto. In Hungary, members of the far-right Arrow Cross Party were forced to exhume Jewish mass graves in very hot weather while local people threw sticks and stones at them. In France clandestine prisons were set up where suspected collaborators were subjected to various forms of sadism, including mutilation, rape and enforced prostitution, and every other type of torture imaginable. So the, uh, these were often the acts of uh, civilians, of, um, of uh, the kind of vigilantes, if you will, um, people who had appointed themselves fascist hunters and collaboration hunters, There was a culture in liberated Paris of hunting down fascists for those who had not been able to participate in the maquis, in in the the resistance. Uh, It suddenly, when the opportunity arose, became very popular to try to reclaim some honour from the years of uh, occupation. The uh, Allied authorities who occupied uh, Germany, uh, Austria and who uh, established very short-lived military governments in places like the Netherlands before a civilian government could be um, uh, elected, um, witnessed these events with uh, no small amount of horror. Um, Even the resistance themselves found uh, in European countries found the stories uh, distressing. If you imagine in uh, Italian partisan groups and uh, French uh, resistance groups, their focus had been on fighting the Nazis, uh, and uh, this had, had to be done in a highly disciplined manner. Um, the, uh, the Mackie may have been many things, but uh, a, a kind of a lynch mob they were not. The terrible thing is, reported La Terre Viroise newspaper in October 1944, that we are repeating some of the most heinous procedures carried out by the Gestapo, it would seem that Nazism has intoxicated a number of individuals to the point where they believe that violence is always legitimate and they can do whatever they please to choose to those they consider to be their adversaries and that everyone has the right to take another person's life. What was the point of triumphing over the barbarians if only to imitate them and become like them? Uh, who had no desire to see um, anarchy and uh, lynch mob justice reign. If you imagine that this was being written in October 1944, um, when the outcome of the war was still to be decided, uh, there was still another seven months until the defeat of uh, uh, of the Third Reich, uh, and it was uh, very, very injurious to the Allied cause to show scenes of um, uh, murder in public uh, and also hear of uh, kidnappings and interrogation cells and, and torches. Another challenge was to the civilian governments that had been governments in exile, mainly um, living in Great Britain, and who returned to Western Europe. The first thing that they needed to do was establish their uh, monopoly on state violence, if you will, to control the army and police force of countries like uh, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands or or France. And then secondly, uh, to ensure that um, vigilante violence stopped. The thing that no government can tolerate uh, on returning to power is um a, a challenge to its its monopoly on 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 state power and so the threat that uh, vigilanteism uh, and the uh, subversion of the rule of law um uh, presented to them um was significant now the 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 desire to prevent the lynching of collaborators had nothing to do with sentimentality or a sense of fair play there i have no doubt that um there were few sympathies for towards anyone who had had collaborated but in order to establish a successful uh, administration uh, that ra- that was able to stabilize uh, formerly occupied countries you needed to stop uh, mob justice happening charles de gaulle uh, said Public order is a matter of life and death, and absolutely all improvised authorities must stop. Uh, he, was, he wanted the French people to be in no mistake about who was now in charge. So, uh, Keith Lowe writes, the new governments of Western Europe attacked the problem from several angles at once. Firstly, recognising that part of the problem was the people's lack of faith in the police, they did whatever they could to bolster the position of the police force as the most important pillar of law and order. In some areas, particularly in Italy and Greece, they merely relied on uh, on the massive Allied presence to provide support. But in others, they tackled the problem head-on by purging suspect officers from the force. Within a year of the liberation of France, for example, one policeman in every eight had been suspended and one of five French detectives had lost their jobs. In other countries, followed, um, other countries followed suit. The purge of the police in Norway and Denmark was equally impressive, although perhaps less so in the rest of Western Europe. The important thing was to restore the legitimacy of the police so that they could stand up to the vigilantes who had taken control in many towns and neighbourhoods. Um, the vigilantes relied on public support. Without public support, vigilantes tend to kind of fizzle out. Uh, because they have no mob to appeal to. If one uh, continues to have corrupt fascist uh, police officers who everybody knows what they've been doing during the war and who can't keep secrets from the people that they police, then there'll be every reason for the mob to support vigilantes who claim to have a greater moral legitimacy. And during the period of occupation, the question of moral const- currency is incredibly important. Who has been tainted and who has not is the, the basis of how countries like France and Belgium uh, managed to survive into the long term. Um, it's, it is the, 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 the key question of um, public life. So uh, removing tainted police officers was uh, absolutely vital. New authorities um, set about trying to disarm the groups of of, uh, former resistors um, who had either been given supplies of weapons from the Allies or who had stolen uh, weapons from the Germans. Um, And, of course, uh, as we can see in virtually every peaceful, stable uh, country in the world, um, an armed population is uh, a, a very, very bad idea. And the state must always restore its monopoly on violence. The uh, process of removing weapons from um, resistance and partisans uh, was quite difficult. Uh, In Paris, for example, the patriotic militia um, continued to to conduct armed patrols in open defiance of the authorities. In Valenciennes, they maintained a huge secret arms cache uh, which include grenades, uh, anti-aircraft machine guns and anti-tank rifles. In Brussels, the members of the secret army were given uh, two weeks to disband, a protest demonstration degenerated into a minor riot. The police opened fire, wounding 45 people. In Italy and Greece, thousands of partisans refused to give up their weapons for the simple reason that they did not trust the authorities, which still, even after the bloodshed of liberation, contained countless people, who were tainted with connections to the old regime. Particularly in Italy, the uh, ability of uh, fascists to uh, seamlessly uh, drift into civilian life uh, was, was was particularly pronounced. Um, if you go back a few months, perhaps earlier on this year you'll find my six-part series on uh, Italian post-war fascism, which really, really uh, helps to kind of uh, illustrate that. Um, So it's understandable that if you had been a communist partisan in northern Italy fighting the fascists under the Salo Republic, and you were asked at the end of the war by American soldiers or British soldiers, or the uh, new italian government to hand in your guns you might think no because those guys that we shot up 6 months ago they know who we are we know who they are and they're going to come and settle some scores at some point in the not too distant future the fascists as far as you're concerned have not gone away they've taken they, they've had a blow they've lost the war but they're still around the attempts to coax former partisans back into civilian life um, revolved around offering amnesties because not all uh, of uh, the partisans uh, at work in countries like France and Italy were whiter than whites. Some had committed crimes, some had um, executed those that they expected to be collaborators or robbed banks or done various other things in order to um, in order to survive. Uh, in Belgium, uh, the authorities were willing to turn a blind eye to almost any resistance activities that, that occurred in the 41 days after the Germans had been ejected. In Italy, uh, amnesty on revenge killings covered the first 12 weeks of, uh, after the end of the war. And in Czechoslovakia, it lasted an astonishing five and a half months. Now, in that, there is a kind of like a nod and a wink from the government that if you want to sort things out, you've got 12 weeks to do it in. So if you want to settle some scores with some people who will probably be a proper nuisance to the incoming government, then do it. Czechoslovakia is slightly different, because Czechoslovakia um, and much of uh, Eastern Europe, uh, as agreed at Yalta between Roosevelt, Stalin and Churchill... Was to be ethnically cleansed of Germans, so that five and a half months was really about terrorizing ethnic Germans out of the country. But if crimes of passion um, committed in the heat of liberation were regarded with leniency, those committed much later, when power was supposed to have been returned to the state, were punished extremely harshly. In France, for example, the series of arrests of former Maquisar in the winter of 1944 to 45 was widely interpreted as a warning to the resistance to bring an end to the lynch mob justice. These measures um, were fairly ineffectual. The real problem, and the main reason why the lynch mobs were so common, was that many people believed vengeance to be their only recourse to justice. Uh, The British ambassador to Paris, Alfred Duff Cooper, um, wrote, So long as people believe that the guilty will be punished, they are prepared to leave them to the law. But when they begin to doubt this is so, they will take the law into their own hands. So in the aftermath of the war, these doubts were everywhere. Um, The only way to stop revenge attacks um, was to convince the people that the state was capable of administering what the Belgian newspapers called justice severe et expeditif. So, real, proper, harsh justice. The... Uh, difficulty for the uh, Allied Powers, as they found in Germany, and for former um, occupied the, the new governments of former occupied states, was that denazification and devisification and de collaboration effication, it's incredibly difficult to when you're looking at hundreds of thousands of people tens of thousands perhaps in each country, hundreds of thousands European-wide, possibly even into the millions if you consider all the number of pe- numbers of people implicated in Nazism in Germany. Then um, removing them from public life, arresting them, punishing them, imprisoning them uh, becomes almost impossible in a continent with um, food shortages, refugee crisis a shattered infrastructure, Um, it becomes unthinkable to take away huge chunks of the skilled workforce who had collaborated and uh, allowing uh, things to be swept under the carpet becomes a matter of political expediency. It's for these reasons that you have, um, later on in Germany, in the 1960s, all sorts of questions about... Um, who did what during the war, um, which are kind of contributory to the student and rest of the late 1960s. Anyway, I'm going to finish there. Thanks very much for listening. Um, and you can find us at the Explaining History Facebook group. There's always some cool uh, articles and um, uh, debates that I, I, I post there. Um, and you can also find us on Patreon as well. Uh, obviously, all contributions gratefully accepted. Uh, and I'll look forward to catching you on the next explaining history podcast. Thanks all the best. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.